0: from the front lines of the Green Rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is John Small, and I am the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. And you know, we talk a lot on this show about the THC-infused beverage category, and it's really one of the fastest-growing categories in the entire cannabis space. And the number one selling THC-infused beverage across America happens to be CAN, C-A-N-N. And my guest today is co-founder of CAN. His name is Luke Anderson. Luke, welcome to the show. Hello. It's a pleasure to be back. So in 2019, Luke and his partner Jake launched Can in California, and they have since expanded to Nevada, Illinois, Massachusetts, Arizona, and they're up in Canada, in Ontario, and British Columbia. And just this week, the company is celebrating a very, very special milestone. They sold their 10 millionth Can of can. That is amazing. 10 million cans sold. The last time Luke was on my podcast, it was only a few years ago, you had just celebrated selling your a millionth can. And now you are at 10 million. So that is quite a leap. So congratulations to you.
1: Thank you. I mean, it's been such a grind. I remember making the first 3,000 by hand in, uh, in a little keg and ceiling uh set up in san diego and and it's amazing to to see it be mass produced in so many places and to know that there are people out there that are looking for healthy and safe uh alcohol substitutes and entry points into cannabis that have really fallen in love with the product and we hope that there's a 100 million milestone coming up in just
0: a few years i mean why not the sky is the limit it's so nice to talk to somebody who's having success in the space because, as you know, it's a, it's a pretty rough time for cannabis right now, and it's nice to talk to a founder who really has has had success and has sort of figured it out. And I want to get to that in case people don't really know the whole backstory of can. Can you you mention a little bit about you know you doing the first three thousand cans yourself, but can you talk a little bit about? kind of how you and Jake even thought of this idea. Just tell me a little bit of the backstory here.
1: Yeah, it's a story that kind of started when Jake and I first met in 2012. We were both management consultants at Bain & Company. It was my uh, first job fresh out of being a high school math teacher and, and first real into the business world. And Jake and I were both very, very heavy alcohol drinkers. And we both were closeted queer people who were trying to navigate this identity crisis and were medicating essentially with booze and and although booze does uh, its job very well in killing brains and allowing you to be a, a sloppy mess is a band aid. It's not a it's not a solution long term for anything that you're dealing with and yet. It is the most common way people cope with any sort of a struggle. It's just so readily available and so widespread. Jake grew up in Colorado. He came up with the idea for CAN and actually incubated a 2-milligram THC beverage when he was at uh, Stanford Graduate School Business and, and had been talking about the idea of the normalization of cannabis being contingent on something that helped people understand it better and, and that didn't get somebody too intoxicated. And from watching the legal market develop in Colorado from a, a young age, and having this thesis that thousands of years of human history had been spent socializing around beverages with microdoses of mild intoxicants, like coffee and tea with the microdose of caffeine or beer and wine with really what is a microdose of alcohol, he thought that the way that cannabis would break out of this sort of illegal box that it has been put in by the federal government was a product and a brand that, that really helped people experience it without any real overwhelming, I-got-too-stoned kind of a feeling. And at the time that he first started telling me about this, which was in probably, you know, 2013, I thought it was the dumbest idea in the world. I was like, you're joking me. Like, I have a hard enough time keeping track of one substance that intoxicates me. And, and that's like a full-time job is like not drinking so much that it completely debil- debilitates my life. Like it, it's, uh, impossible to imagine that another drug. And I use that, that word with a lot of layers, eh, because it's, it's very problematic that it's even called a drug. Uh, why, why would I add another substance that makes me crazy? And how is that going to solve this problem? And it took until I was 30 years old. I was still working at Bain. Jake had since left um, and was at business school while he was incubating this product. And I had my first two day long hangover where my activities on a Saturday bled into my work performance on a Monday. And at that moment, I was starting to experiment with, instead of drinking, as a way to just moderate my own alcohol consumption, eating like a quarter of an edible and and a 10 milligram edible chopped into four pieces. I was like, you know what? A two and a half milligram dose is actually quite enough. I can feel it. And I don't feel socially incapacity. And then I remembered Jake's speech about this idea that cannabis beverages would become mainstream when they were you know, more controlled from a dosage perspective. And I reached out to him and I said, hey, I am working in this unit right now at Bain where I'm helping big CPG companies behave more like startups. And I think I have a really good toolkit for a product launch with a $500,000 budget, a very, very short sprint, six months to market and I finally get your idea because I'm kind of re-engineering it with the with the quarter of a gummy. And why not just put it all into one container? And he was like, You finally get it. Great. Let's move to LA. Let's raise some money and let's give it a go. And and we raised um, a pre-seed round and the two of us moved in together and we were really just building the plane as we were flying it for so long. And and it's it's really kind of startling and jarring to look back and reflect on on the whole journey because it just started as two guys looking to try and drink less and uh, figure out how cannabis beverages could be a solution to it
0: well let's unpack that a little bit because you guys are not the first company to dis- to do a THC infused beverage and yet you're the biggest company so part of it is just this alchemy of you know Jake having this idea, this great idea, and then you having this CPG background, right? You guys both have banking background, investment background, but it almost seems like you were a good peanut butter to his chocolate, right? Or whatever. Like you guys were a good match in that way. You kind of, what do you think? Let's talk a little bit about your partnership. What about your partnership you think made you guys so successful?
1: Well, I think um, I'll give Jake a ton of credit for really setting the scene. I had no idea What entrepreneurship would be like. He had been trying to think about how to get this started for such a long time. And we had a meeting where we just made a series of commitments to one another. We grounded our partnership with an extreme sense of trust and loyalty. And we had a really chaotic and unhinged friendship for the balance of the previous decade. And being able to navigate a long term friendship where there were a lot of challenges. And our challenges were rooted in this sort of overdrinking of alcohol issue that, that kept kind of resurfacing into our lives. And the fact that we were able to solve friendship ending issues over and over again and continue to show up to the friendship, I think gave us a least uh, confidence that we could solve business problems together without an ego and and figure out how to just divide and conquer and share responsibilities as the business unfolded. We are very very good at different things. He is incredibly analytical and precise and and I am pretty messy but fearless and just run into the woods and see what happens and I think what we've really come back to at any point that we've needed to reorganize the business and figure out how to allocate responsibilities is if it needs to be done perfectly well, he should do it. If it needs to be done really fast and good enough, then I should probably do it. And things tend to fall in one bucket or the other. Uh, you know, I built our first manufacturing facility, and and then I realized very quickly that I should not be the one that's like running the operation and trying to efficiency gains, and then handed that off to who is now our COO, Ishan. I used to work hand-in-hand with a designer and methodically write every single Instagram post. And now we have uh, a great branding content executive in, in Kim. And Jake has really, anytime that something has exited the like, okay, it's taped together and it really needs to be a fine-tuned machine, and, and he is able to take it there. So it really has been a completely uncharted territory. Nobody had ever made a micro THC beverage and, and commercialized it successfully beforehand. There was this uh, legacy of V1.0 THC beverages, but they were so much higher dosage. And the strategy around branding and marketing was very, very different from the approach that we took. And you do have to be a little bit delusional and insane to try to just create something out of
0: nothing. But it helps that you didn't know anything, right? Because had you known something, you might not have gotten it. A lot of entrepreneurs will say that. It's helped that I went in completely blind because otherwise I would have never done this.
1: Exactly. And I'm really glad I didn't do it alone. And and having a partner that you can trust and that you are excited to show up and solve problems with, it makes it 10 times easier.
0: You guys mentioned that you're both LGBT and you have mentioned that a lot in your press. It's part of your... It's kind of part of the can message. But you also mentioned at the beginning of this interview, that you were both closeted, which I was interested to hear. When did you guys sort of come out and was it in conjunction with can or was it like a separate things in your lives?
1: No, we both came out fairly shortly after meeting one another and really helped each other through that, that process. And we both identified differently. Like I, I technically, you know, I'm a pansexual man, and and I think Jake identifies as gay, and yet I think we understand through learning about ourselves and how to feel comfortable in in our own skin that everything exists on a spectrum. It's like I could also identify as straight, and and Jake could also identify as straight, and in a different life we maybe you know could have got married and had kids with with women. But I think the beauty of queerness is that it allows you to break down whatever the societal expectations there are about what it means to belong and that you can define your own sense of self and, and your own community and find strength in in people who identify similarly. And Ken is also challenging this sort of sobriety spectrum. It, it's like, oh, you're drinking or you're not drinking, or maybe there's something in the middle. And And I think our queerness—it has helped to guide a lot of the brand marketing, for sure, and also the ideology around not needing to necessarily fit neatly into a box, which, which I think, um, you know, heteronormative culture uh, does teach you at a really early age that that's what belonging looks like—is you stay in this lane.
0: Right. It helped having again. Not being it, like you said, in a box, not being knowing having a very prescribed way of doing things, I think really definitely helped you guys here. Tell me a little bit about this decision to be a microdosed beverage. That's a key thing here because a lot of the beverages in the market are not microdosed. And of course, there's a real push in the at least on the sort of flower side of like to get the most THC for your buck, you know, like that's the that's where the market's going. So it seems counterintuitive that your brand, which is so successful, is all about microdosing. So Talk to us about that decision. Why did you make decide to make it a microdose rather than like a really heavy THC infused drink? It was
1: an easy decision for us because we just wanted to make a drink that we would pay money for and that we would be happy to consume. And for me, like I can't have you know five milligrams of THC all at once and and not feel completely insane. Uh, it, I have to figure out how to moderate and and slowly build without having an anxiety attack. And I, it turns out. Most American adults feel the same way. I think what's so frustrating about the way that the industry has prioritized this high THC and let's, you know, most buzz for your buck uh, mentality that kind of pervades the dispensary is that it really is doing everybody a disservice. When when I go mystery shop and I say, hey, I'm looking to drink less booze. Like I don't like getting too high. What would you recommend? Nine times out of 10, I get recommended, even when my own product is in the fridge, I get recommended a hundred milligram chocolate bar. And it's like, no, no, no. If you give somebody a hundred milligram chocolate bar and they consume too much, they are never coming back to the dispensary. And then they are going to go off and in their social circles and and to whoever will listen, continue this narrative around cannabis as like, it's for stoners and it's not for everybody. And ultimately that is what is holding the much needed regulatory reform back is this lingering societal feeling that, that cannabis is illicit and that it's it's bad and that it, it's like a drug. And it's not that. You just need to make sure that people who are starting out don't have a traumatic experience. And, and so I think what you're seeing in the market today is a lot of people going back to the legacy market and going back to their weed dealer and and not Paying taxes and figuring out. Well, I mean, if we're all going to be arguing about the most buzz for your buck, there's a much cheaper way for me to do it than to go to a dispensary that looks like an Apple Store and that charges me an arm and a leg for something that I can get down the street for for half as much. But what is not a commodity is a brand and an experience. And if you're finding people that are paying eight dollars for a kombucha that does not get you high or drunk, then that's probably how we should be thinking about the evolution of the cannabis industry, especially if we're looking at rec markets and. And the consumer that we sorely need to be populating the dispensaries, you got to meet them where they're at, and it's not with a thousand milligrams of THC. I can tell you that much.
0: Yeah, but now the illicit market doesn't seem to affect—and maybe I'm wrong here—your product. Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe there is maybe in the illicit market you can you can find microdosed beverages, but they probably don't taste like yours, and I wouldn't trust them. I mean, I wouldn't trust really anything in the illicit market, but. Tell me how, have you been able to kind of, because of what you are and how you have positioned yourself, able to sort of skirt that issue, which is such a problem for so many cannabis companies? Like you've created a product that is actually pretty hard to replicate in the illicit market.
1: It is impossible. I don't think, I mean, there's a lot of Delta 9 hemp derived talk right now. And I think that you're seeing sold on the street corners in in New York, maybe products that kind of could disguise themselves as a can. But our brand is so difficult to knock off because there are so many details about it that are so underlocking key. The you know the color palette, the tone of voice, the single weight line artwork that's geometric and draws influences from the fruit and herb ingredients, but also the cannabis storytelling and, and how you get elevated and high in every detail that we chose in the packaging. And, and I think that's how brands are, are built and that's how they sustain their their power
0: over time. And that's the packaging, but what about the actual product itself, the beverage? It's also hard to replicate, right?
1: Shoot, it, making a 30 calorie beverage with 10 grams of added sugar or less that tastes really good and has a dedicated profile to it is, is a huge challenge. And Jake and I you know, argued six or seven drops of lavender for hours before settling on the final formula for for the lemon lavender product and and that product like hundreds of thousands of cans a month uh, are just kind of like continuing to be repurchased by consumers who are just like, I just like the way it tastes and the way it makes me feel. And I I think the goal is for us to continue to protect the integrity of the formulation and hold it under lock and key, just like a Coca-Cola or, you know, Kentucky fried chicken recipe. And and hopefully decades from now, people will still sort of feel that nostalgia every time they crack open the can and, and start to smell the aroma even before they taste it.
0: Well, don't change a formula because I was alive during the the new Coke, uh went a disaster. But of course it was kind of a marketing genius because then they went back to classic Coke. So you could do you could do classic can eventually, I guess. All right. So I'm keeping score here. So basically, great partnership. You created a product that you would want to use. You both you create a product that's very, very hard to replicate, something that people really, really want. Another thing that you guys did brilliantly in your marketing is that you got a lot of celebrities involved and I would imagine that helped you tell me, but like, for example, let me, I had this list here of the different people that have been associated with your brand or backed by who have backed your brand. Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Hudson, Baron Davis, Rebel Wilson, Rosario Dawson, Darren Chris, And there's more. First of all, how'd you get those people to back you? And then I also want to know, did, did those people then you think help you sell more cans?
1: They truly have been the most incredible business partners. They they believe in the vision. And because they're investors, it's very, very different from a, a celebrity deal. It's not about the transaction. It's about being a part of the same family and building the story together. I owe uh, Gwyneth so much for being one of the first to just believe in us. Ruby Rose actually was was the very first to believe and put her name behind the brand. And, and once um, Ruby and Gwyneth did, everyone kind of looked at it a little differently than the first wave of cannabis brands where the people that were promoting them and Chelsea Handler, Snoop Dogg, Martha Stewart, Seth Rogen incredible icons. However, being a cannabis user is a very important part of their personal brands. And so it works really well for flower. It works really well for for the high THC consumer. But for the people that are skeptical, it takes an army of people who you would kind of scratch your head and say, wait a minute, they use cannabis? Like maybe it's not so bad of an idea for me to give it a try.
0: I remember Ellen DeGeneres talking about can, right, in one of her monologues. That was pretty key. And
1: completely out of nowhere. We we had no idea it was happening. And I didn't find out until it had gone live. It, it, so, but unfortunately, as great of a help as they've all been, while we wait for federal regulations to increase the access to it, Cannabis. When Ellen goes on Kimmel uh, or her own show, we'll get millions of people rushing to the website, only to find out that for ninety percent of them, they don't live somewhere where it's possible to buy the product. And so, it's a it's a good problem, but it's it's still a problem.
0: It's frustrating. How did you get to a, somebody like a Gwyneth Paltrow? I mean, how do you? I think a lot of cannabis entrepreneurs might wonder how do you even get a meeting with a Gwyneth Paltrow or a Darren Chris or whoever. Uh, the different people.
1: And well, this is where being really shameless um, comes in handy. Uh, there was a, a moment where we brought on Imaginary, which is an amazing VC, um, Natalie Massonay and Nick Brown. Uh, Natalie, who founded Netaporte, invested in us in our first year, and they have done a number of really incredible, intentional celebrity-backed brands. And they said, "This will really open up for you once you start working with people who have." bigger microphones and access to, to you know a broader audience and then can help to share your message with people who don't have the ability to hear it. So in part, I owe a lot of it to Imaginary and, and Nick who introduced me to Gwyneth um, for our first pitch meeting. But in that meeting, actually, Gwyneth ended up saying no. And I was heartbroken in part because, very, very weird story, but Gwyneth Paltrow was actually my babysitter when I was two years old. And so I go into the meeting and she's like, it's so nice to meet you. And I'm like, As we actually met you know, in the in the early 90s because I look like I'm her age, even though I, I'm almost 20 years younger. It, she was like, wait, did we used party together? And I was just like, no, no, no. I was the little kid that you changed the diapers. She was like, oh my God, I remember you. But it made it all that much more heartbreaking when she took a look at the numbers and she said no, because we had opened up all this distribution and nobody was buying. We, we There was a ton of hype around the brand. We had done a really good job bringing the product to market and making it look and taste good. But once it hit the retailer shelves outside of MedMen, it was not selling. And so during the pandemic, I used to drive around and, and anyone who was following the can brand who seemed to have a big following, I would send them a DM and beg them to let me show up to their house and drop off a bunch of cases. And, and I just kept doing this over and over again. Every single night, I would just drive for like six hours and... and anyone who would listen to me, I would just barge in and sit down on their couch and and try to have a conversation. And eventually people kind of started catching on and, and it took, um, you know, a couple of big names to promote it before the dominoes really started falling. And now we have, uh, 35, I think, uh, celebrity investors. And it really was, um, the bravery of the first few to just be public and say, Hey, I don't really identify with genre culture not that I think there's anything wrong with it, but maybe of types of people who can find belonging in the cannabis community and we should open it up because it's pretty universally agreed that we would all like to drink less booze and feel less hungover. And if cannabis were as easy to access, then maybe the world would be a little bit less unbearable to live in. <laughs> so I'm really grateful for the support of everybody who, who believed in us and we really
0: hope to continue to make them proud. So you expanded all these different places And Canada, America. When You're not part of an MSO though, right? We are not. We
1: have MSO
0: partners and
1: GTI is a a big investor and uh, Ben Kovler sits on our board. And he has been an amazing partner. He has helped us to see the curvature of the earth and how the industry is thinking about things well before they happen. And because of that, we have been very, very sharp and quick and ensured that we had the right resources to navigate these ebbs and flows. And and I think in in a moment right now, right now, the industry is in such a bad spot, in part because legal cannabis operators have failed to attract and retain the canna-curious consumer. And by working with somebody like Ben, who is so close to every bit of regulatory movement, every new market activity, and just the dynamics of the legal channel, we've been able to avoid combusting. Uh, quite a few times. And and we've ensured that we have the right resources to be able to navigate any near-term dips and be able to survive. And frankly, in the legal cannabis industry right now, it's all about survival. And I think we're going to see a lot of brands that that had a lot of power suddenly disappear because they really just expected that federal legalization would happen more quickly. And that is a very big and hairy and confusing issue. And I could not tell you with any degree of certainty when it will happen. So we've been advised um, by people like Ben and, and by the rest of our board and everyone around the table to build this business as if it's never going to happen and ensure that we can figure out a way to sustainably operate as if it could be decades away.
0: And I'm sure you've gotten many offers to be acquired. But it's interesting that you haven't done that, gone that route yet.
1: There have been a few times. I mean, this entrepreneurship thing. If I could do it all over again, I'd do it a million different ways. And and there were times where I, I really was tempted to to sell the company. But Jake and I have continued to just return to this idea that ultimately this isn't a cannabis company. This is a beverage company, and cannabis is a, an ingredient. And we believe in a future where. It is positioned next to hard kombucha on the shelves of Whole Foods. There's no reason why something as healthy and safe as as this product should not be existing side by side with the literal poison that's in the alcoholic beverages that don't have child locks on them. So for that reason, we want to continue to build this so that it is attractive to people who have big alcohol distribution in their bones, because that is the, the critical missing piece here in, in getting it to be mainstream is is the integration with the bed valve world.
0: Yeah. So until it's nationally legal, and we both of us have no idea when that's going to be, if that's ever going to be, do you still hold out hope that an Anheuser-Busch or a company like that would maybe make an, an offer?
1: I mean, a guy can dream, but I think because of the way the public markets work, if you're a publicly traded big alcohol company doing anything in advance of federal legalization, it's just too risky and, and you don't want to... I think, be in bad graces with the government. And so they have limited their activity to investing in Canadian operations because it is federally legal there. But there are a lot of large privately held alcohol companies, a lot lot of large privately held uh, beverage and CPG companies that I think will start to see the forest for the trees and understand that every single one of these major multi-brand operations will need to have a cannabis brand in their portfolio at some point in the future. So in the in the near term, we're just continuing to build the brand so that it is as interesting and unique as it can be. So that when that time comes, we're the GTs of the kombucha world or the Oatly of the oat milk.
0: Well, you really have a brand here. Can is a brand in an, in, a comp- in an industry where there's not a lot of standalone brands. You've really done almost the impossible. I'm curious on the marketing side, what is it that you think you've done that's been the single most effective thing and sort of building brand awareness and brand loyalty.
1: The talent partnerships. The group of people we have been lucky enough to work with on creative campaigns and their generosity with us in sharing our product with their platforms has been our lifeblood. And and we have made it as diverse and wide ranging from a capability perspective as as I think one could imagine. And that's by design. We believe this product is for everybody. And so we want to work with everybody who likes it. And there's no limit to who a canned drinker can and should be as long as they're not an asshole and, and they don't take themselves too seriously. And I think by being really generous with them and sharing the product and you know driving around and dropping off Sometimes flats and flats of twenty-four packs that I personally purchased with my own money at retail because how confusing it is to legally gift cannabis to somebody and then having them return that generosity. I think a lot of people go into these negotiations with celebrities and they're looking for well, what am I going to get out of this? But I've really just gone into and tried to get to know everyone and, and understand their intentions for being involved in the cannabis industry and you know whether it's. Um, Kate Hudson, who owns a vodka company and says, hey, like, why don't we be boundary pushing about this and let's just mix cannabis and alcohol together and call it a fun holiday drink and see if that hits. Or if it's Rosario Dawson, who is a very authentic pattern of social justice activism and who's given me a really rich education on what it means to be a white dude operating in an industry that's essentially stolen land and everywhere in between. And then just their kindness to me as a struggling entrepreneur at various phases of the journey and celebrities are entrepreneurs themselves they're they're building themselves as a brand well, being an
0: actor is a sort of like original entrepreneurial job right i mean you're just kind of like you're se- you're selling your own brand which is you
1: Exactly, and they have had ebbs and flows in their career journeys that I think really resonate with me as an entrepreneur. I mean, my low points in this have been so low, and and have I felt so isolated? Felt like I lost all my friends because I've been so busy. Uh, at one point, I was so stressed out when the company was out of money and I had negative one hundred thousand dollars in credit card interest payments that were in excess of my rent, and there was just no end in sight. And I spent two days in the psych ward because I had a full blown breakdown and then had to get on a plane after walking myself out of the psych ward after I got enough sleep to be healthy again. I ended up getting on a plane and flying to New York for a pitch meeting and it was just back to the grind. And those experiences are so, so fucking lonely, pardon my French, but it's people who have been really heavily scrutinized in the public eye as they try to build their own personal brand and, and, and productize their celebrity. They've been very helpful advice givers and friends. Um, Patricia Arquette, Of everyone that I've worked with has been the most incredible source of support. And over the last year, I lost my mom in March to brain cancer after a a grueling, grueling battle of multiple brain surgeries. And Patricia, when she was in her early 30s, she was caring for her her dying mother. And she told me, uh, hey, if you ever need to call and talk, I don't care if it's at 2 a.m., just give me a call. And during the really, really difficult Family experience that we were all going through. I didn't have a lot of people that I could turn to, and that who who weren't bummed out by the grief and weren't willing to give me some encouragement and help me like continue to operate and and try to build the brand with confidence. And and so I endlessly grateful for for her in particular.
0: Yeah, well, that's beautiful. And I'm so sorry to hear about your mom. How are you doing? Because it's you sound like you were going through some rough patches. I mean, I know the company is successful, but that doesn't necessarily translate into <laughs> healthy entrepreneurs and business owners. I mean, you can. Are you okay these days? No, I'm terrible. <laughs> you I'm are. Literally... You look like a wreck.
1: <laughs> oh my God, stop.
0: No, you look fine.
1: <laughs> no, I'm really terrible. <laughs> really? I'm not, I'm not kidding. Oh my God. Um, but it's uh, it's getting a little bit easier. I mean, my mom raised me as a single mom. She's the most beautiful and inspirational person. And I miss her every day. And I don't think that's that's pain that will ever go away.
0: That is... Listen, I lost my dad. And... It is, there's nothing like losing a parent. It's very intense and I'm so sorry. And I'm so sorry. I was kidding. And I didn't mean to be kidding because, you know, I think we all, we all think when somebody is successful, they must be so happy, but you know, that's not really the way it goes. But I'm glad to hear that you have the support, at least uh, in your community and uh, with your co, your business owners and and your investors, and hopefully you have friends.
1: (laughs) Yes. The ones that, the ones that have stuck around through the journey are are really Angels. But being being friends with an entrepreneur, like I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> My husband's also, he runs a tech company. And so we've got two entrepreneurs under one roof. And we're both just like, I don't even want to talk to each other because we're both experiencing so much of the same stress. But you know what's good for stress is just getting a little bit high.
0: <laughs> yep. Just a two two milligrams
1: because THC will make all your worries go away
0: temporarily. Well, it really is a great product. I was so excited. I think I might have even tell you this the first time we talked that. I was just, you know, I had a party at my house and somebody, just a guy who had been a heavy drinker, kind of, he showed up with a can, a can of can. And he was sipping and he's like, are you aware of this? I'm like, dude, I'm in the business. But yeah, I'm like, do you like this? And he goes, I love it. It's like been a savior for me because now I don't have to drink a lot, but I can be at this party and be happy and not have to feel like I need to get super drunk or whatever. And and it was kind of like a lifesaver for him. So I saw, I really saw it in, in action. So I I guess I have served firsthand experience with can?
1: It's been a lifesaver for me. I mean, the year before I started can, I was partying my face off in Berlin and I fell from a 10 foot balcony at a club and hit my head on the staircase, went to the hospital. And I was so just like on the fritz and drugged out that I argued with the people at the hospital, could not write my name properly and left before they could stitch me up. And then I had to get taken to a different hospital. And it's like, there's this toxic... Party culture—it kind of you just like cannot get out of it unless you can off ramp. And hey, I'm no angel. I still like to have a, a, a pretty a big night out every once in a while. But I drink half as much as I used to. And yeah, sometimes it's still too much. But if it weren't for can, if it weren't for cannabis, I might not even be alive anymore. So I think a lot of people are are finding that. And and what's so exciting about how this industry is developing is a lot more people will find that. And I think yeah, it's a business. Like everyone's everyone's out there trying to you know print product and put it in people's hands and make sure the bank account doesn't run out. But we're really attached to the mission. We're we're here to change social drinking. We're here to offer somebody a, a, an alternate pathway than full sobriety or a stepping stone to full sobriety in a lot of cases or a Cali sober lifestyle or whatever it is in between. And hopefully uh, it continues to to grow the way it has because I think a lot of people would benefit from it.
0: Well, Luke, I so appreciate your candor and your, you know, just your your devotion to the industry and to just being real and authentic. So thank you so much for for joining us today and, and sharing your your story with us. It's really, really, really great.
1: Thanks for having me, and thank you for doing the the work to get this out there. Cannabis is really in need of good stories, and and you're
0: serving them up. All right, well, we're trying, and you certainly have a good one, so you make my job easier. Luke Anderson, it's called Can. If you, hopefully, you can find it in your area. If not, the go, the website you can go to where is Can. What's the what are the socials for for Can?
1: At Drink Can D R I N K C A N N, and uh, please buy it so I don't get fired.
0: Yeah, no, we can't can't have that. All right, Luke. Have a good one, man. I'm so great. Good to see you again. And I'll hit you up when you hit 20 million, 20 million cans. Awesome. (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, head on over to greenentrepreneur.com for the latest cannabis and CBD news, thoughtful essays tips and insider tricks on how to succeed in the cannabis business all that good stuff and hey if you like this podcast do me a huge solid and go to wherever you may listen to your podcast and please rate and review our podcast it does wonders for the algorithm helps others find the podcast would so appreciate a review and a rating thank you so much for listening